0: Let's dive into our series uh, that we started a few weeks ago called Gospel Restoration. Gospel Restoration, this series is about, as we've uh, told every week, kind of sharing the fullness of the gospel story. And we've come to a very linchpin part of the story, a very critical part of the story. It's It's probably the part of the story that you've never heard included into the good news, into the gospel message. And I, I'm going to suggest to you that without this part of the story, you lose a huge chunk of the good news, a huge chunk of why we uh, call this, this whole gospel thing, this whole Jesus message, good news. And it's just, it's absolutely critical. So let me, let me just quickly review with you where we are in terms of the story. We started with the creation story, how there's a God out there and, and he has created absolutely everything and he created it perfectly and he created it without sin and without, uh, any pain in the world and things like that. he created us perfectly. He created us uh, with a role uh, in his uh, kingdom, that his perfect kingdom that he created, and then uh, we got in the way of that perfect creation. That sin enters the world through us and our, and our rebellion uh, for, through humans. and We and you can blame that on Adam and Eve all you want, but we have all followed suit. In that, none of us get come out of this thing innocent. And so, because of that first sin, that original sin sin now uh, kind of has its way in this world. The world is fallen. The morality of the world is fallen. The natural order of things is is broken and fallen. There's pain and there's suffering and there's work and there's toil and there's there's just you know things aren't the way that God intended for them to be. But he immediately after We fall, he immediately sets into motion his plan to restore things to the way he intended them to be. And that's what the rest of the story is about. The next week we talked about how he started with a covenant with a man by the name of Abraham. This covenant was with Abraham and his family, and that covenant basically was uh, uh, what we called an unconditional covenant. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you land. Abraham was a nomadic guy with no land of his own. He said, I'm going to give you descendants. Abraham uh, was an old man married to an old woman, and they had no kids, none at all, and no prospects of kids uh, because they were so old. And God said, no, I'm going to give you descendants. And uh, in fact, you'll be able to number, look up at the stars, that your descendants will number like the stars. There'll be so many of them. And out of your uh, bloodline will come kings. And, and then the third part of that uh, covenant with Abraham is that I'm going to bless the entire world through your family. And this is... The reference, one of the first references in the scripture that we get to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ would eventually come out of Abraham's bloodline and change and turn everything on its head, change everything, become exactly what we needed, and we're going to get to that part of the story very soon. So, it starts with this covenant with Abraham. Then we fast forward a few hundred years. ...to uh, the story of Moses and the children of Israel... ...that the, the nation of Israel was basically Abraham's family gone wild. Okay, so Abraham had a, had a kid and uh, and they went on and had kids... ...and they went on and had kids until several hundred years later... ...that's where the, the nation of Israel was Abraham's family. And uh, and so God, after they were in uh, slavery in Egypt... Uh, you ...go read that story, it's a great, great story... ...but they're in slavery in Egypt, God delivers them out of slavery... From Egypt, uh, their leader is a guy by the name of Moses. God begins to give Moses the law, the law in which to. Uh, it was the law was basically there to set the nation of Israel apart from the other nations. The law was the thing that would uh, that would define them and and that would um, help them to be God's holy people if they could follow the law. The problem was none of us could follow it. Nobody can follow that law. It's too. It's just too much. It's too much. It's there. And, and, you know, later on in the Bible, we hear uh, some of the New Testament writers say that the whole purpose of the law basically was to show us that we needed a Savior. It was to show us that we could not do this on our own. And so God also establishes a covenant with Moses that we call the Mosaic Covenant. And this covenant was not an unconditional covenant, meaning that, you know, the, the unconditional covenant before with Abraham was whether you're faithful or not, I'm keeping my word. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to bless the world through your family. Unconditional covenant. God establishes an, a, 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 separate, a separate covenant with Moses. A conditional covenant, which he says, if you follow me, if you love me, if you follow my laws and my statutes and my commands, then I will uh, then I will set you apart as a holy people, as a holy nation. I will set you apart. I will bless you. I will use you in in my process of sharing with the world that good news is coming. And so there's this conti- if there's this condition there. If you do this, then I'll do that. Now, this was not God breaking his covenant with Abraham. He was still going to stay faithful to his covenant with Abraham, but his covenant with the nation of Israel was condition- conditional. If you as a nation continue to follow me, worship no other gods except for me, follow me and, and, and obey my commands. Then I will use you in in this process of being a light to the world that we talked about last week, that Israel was intended to be God's vessel through which he would convey his redemptive plan to the rest of the world. The problem is, now we're catching up to where we are this week, the problem is is that Israel took that role and perverted it into something that God did not intend. First of all, they very quickly began to worship other gods they went through this whole cycle over and over and over where they would allow other kind of surrounding uh nations and surrounding tribes to influence them and and they would bring in their false gods and and uh, and they would worship other gods to the point that they would bring some of those gods into their own temple area and 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 confuse all that worship and it was just it was just this perverse idolatry that would go on in Israel so they would worship other gods and god there would be you know god would warned them to stop, and they would not stop, and then God would punish the nation, and then they would come back and go, okay, we're, we're going to stop, we're going you know, to repent, and they would repent, and there would be a time of peace in the nation, and then they would start to worship God's again, and the whole cycle would start over again, and they just went through the cycle over and over and over. There was this period of time, I'm going to try to cat, kind of catch you up to where we are. Um, from the time that God gave Moses the law, Israel was delivered into the land that God had promised them, they were able to set up their nation, the national country of Israel, in this new land, this promised land. <coughs> as they got there, they, uh, they were initially governed by what the Bible described to us as judges. Judges, not a president, not a king or anything, just judges that God set aside to kind of lead the people. And these judges were spiritual leaders, and they were also military leaders as well. And, uh, and so God would use these judges. After a while, Israel began to look at the surrounding nations and see how all the other nations had kings. And Israel said, we want kings too. And God basically said, why do you need kings? You have me. And they insisted, though, no, we want, we want a king. And so God began to, uh, by anointing a, a particular king by the name of Saul. And King Saul started off on a good path but very quickly, like a lot of kings do, got off track. Began to focus more on his own self and his own legacy than being faithful to God. Um, when King Saul went evil, God then anointed a, a successor, a, a man that you've probably all heard of by the name of David. David would be the next king. David is the David of David and Goliath, that, that awesome battle where he fights a, a very, very large man, right? And, um, and so, long story short, God removes Saul from the throne, King David. Eventually takes the throne, and King David, though he was a very flawed man, though he was all he was, he committed some pretty uh, heinous sins in his life. Uh, at the end of the day, he was a, he was a faithful man. He was a faithful man. We've talked about this before that in God's eyes, uh, what pleases Him is not perfection; what pleases Him is faithfulness. Faithfulness. And so David was a faithful king, and and uh, Israel was kind of in its heyday under david 's rule and to, to the to the point that for hundreds uh, if not thousands of years after maybe probably even still today, the nation of Israel looks back on King David as the model king, the one that they would hope to see another king reign the way he reigned before after King David uh, died. His son Solomon became king, and then after him, on and on and on, all these other kings came to came to bear, and it was just wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. Maybe a holy, you know, a righteous king for a small period of time, but then wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. Kings that would not lead the nation the way God wanted them to lead the nation. Kings that would allow idolatry. Now, when I talk about idolatry, oh man, I meant to put this picture up there. I don't know if anybody saw this. Oh, I'm so mad I didn't put it up there. Um, Just this week, there was a story that came out. I saw it on CNN where a a little nine-year-old boy in Israel was out with his friends around a kind of historic site and uh, stumbled across what initially looked like an interesting looking rock, and when he brushed it off, it was actually a... um, 3,400-year-old image of a, a female goddess, about, about this big, about this big. I, I wanted to show that to you because I, I think it's really important that when we talk about that there was some worship of other gods going on in the nation of Israel, it was not just a little bit here and a little bit there. It was, it, it was so widespread that 3,400 years later, we're still finding the evidence of it. They they were, if you read through the scripture, there were these, uh, these things called Asherah poles that were all over the nation. All, almost every home had them, every farm had them, these Asherah poles. And they were kind of a, this way of worshiping this uh, fertility God. And these Asherah poles were were basically phallic symbols, just disgusting, horrible phallic symbols all over the, the countryside. It was so widespread and so disgusting. And God continually warned his people. So when we get through, when, when we're kind of looking in the scope of the Bible, of, of this book here, when you're looking at what's going on here, after you get through some of the historical books and, and, the, and the Psalms, the poetry books and things like that, then you come into uh, you know, hundreds of pages worth of prophecy. And basically what would happen is God would continually raise up these prophets, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Nahum and Daniel and others, on and on and on, all these prophets that we have in the Old Testament. He would raise up these prophets to warn the nation of Israel. I've, I, I've, I've warned you before, if you don't stick with me, this is not going to go well for you. And they lay it out very very uh, clearly, the, the prophets do, they lay it out so clearly If you are not faithful to your God, he will deliver you into the hands of your enemy. He will take away your national pride and give it to someone else. He will lay you to waste. He will lay you bare. If you don't turn back to him, and this warning was given over and over and over, and Israel just ignored and ignored and ignored and continued to worship other gods and continued to allow things in their country that they shouldn't have allowed, their unfaithfulness was just disgusting, absolutely disgusting. Now, this is God, God Almighty, the one and only true God that has warned them about this, this holy, 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 perfect God who, who cannot bear for sin to be in his presence because he's that holy, he's that perfect, and he's continually warned this nation this nation that their whole role in the world was supposed to be, I want you to tell the surrounding nations, to tell the rest of the world the good news that's going to come through your father Abraham's family. I want you to tell them, I want you to be a lighthouse to the rest of the known world to point them to the one and only true God. That's what I want you to be. And instead of taking upon that role... Well, that's our first point, that Israel habitually chose unfaithfulness to God and failed to live up to their redemptive purpose. Israel habitually chose unfaithfulness to God and failed to live up to their redemptive purpose. It was was such a disappointment. It was not the way God had intended it. Look at Hosea uh, chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8. Start with verse 1 through 3. It's on the screen there. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Hosea is one of these prophets I was talking about earlier. He's prophesying. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law, to me they cry, My God, we, Israel, we know you. But Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Down to verse 7. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flour. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up, and already they are among the nations as, say that with me, a useless vessel. God's whole plan for them was for them to be the vessel in which he would convey his redemptive plan to the rest of the world, and now he has pronounced them a useless vessel. A useless vessel because of their unfaithfulness. So the next point is this, that the consequence of Israel's idolatry was national exile. National exile. It started with a, a country by the, uh, known as the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in. This is about uh, 750 years before the time of Christ. And uh, the, the Assyrians came in and absolutely destroyed this nation and took them into captivity. And they were several, several years in in captivity with Assyria before they were freed. It, then the cycle then repeated itself again where, okay, we're, we're coming back to God and now we're leaving him again and we're unfaithful and we're bringing in false gods. And then uh, another nation that you probably heard of by the name of Babylon. Babylon, uh, it's not just a sci-fi show, Babylon was uh, this, this nation that basically, they were Rome before Rome. They were ruling the entire world. And Babylon came in and uh, again, laid waste to Israel, to Jerusalem, to that whole area, took all the people, uh, most all of them anyway, captive and back to the land of Babylon where they would serve and have jobs and roles and things there. That's where the the, the, the story of Daniel comes into place in the Bible. But again, exile is what happened. God said, if you don't turn back to me, this is going to happen. And it happened. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy, name the the kings by name, hundreds of years before it happened, that will come in and take them over. God has very clearly laid out what would happen. And so this exile starts. And for, so basically, again, they're in Babylon for in exile for a lot of years too, not able to worship at their temple, not able to worship freely their, their God, that sort of thing, uh, to where generations are born in uh, Babylon. Uh, and, and the the faith is almost but completely lost it 's only carried on by a few families that continue to pass it on to their kids and uh, and so this whole this whole thing happens. they eventually are able to return back and rebuild the country and the, and the new spirit then happens of um, they want to be true to god that they, they 've learned their lesson we don 't want exile to happen again, we want to be true to God, and so this is what takes place. To ensure that they're faithful to God, they twist up everything that God had told them about how important it was to be faithful to them and not so much perfect. Instead, they start demanding perfection of each other. Okay, we're going to follow the law this time, but we're going to follow it to the letter. In fact, we're going to pile law on top of law. We're going to add to the laws, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be super legalistic about the sacrifices and about the laws. And, and, you know, things like the Sabbath where God said, you know, take a Sabbath day, take a rest day, keep that holy once a week. You know, he established this as one of his commandments. They're like, oh, not only are we going to take a Sabbath, but if we see anybody move on the Sabbath, we're going to arrest them. Like, like, if you got, you've got an issue you've got to deal with on the Sabbath, tough luck. If you didn't cook your food before the Sabbath to eat on the Sabbath, tough luck. If you get caught, you're arrested. And so they would just add law, add law on top of law, on top of law. And this went on for several hundred years. I want you to, to, to it, the best that you can, take your mind to this place where, where they were. Take your mind to the, this place where they, where they were for, for hundreds of years. They had basically just been kind of lost as a nation. Hundreds upon hundreds of years. And then even after the exile ends, they're still lost because they're, they're, they're just confusing. They're convoluting this whole experience with the one and only true God into something that God never intended it to be. a desperate, dark, dark time in Israel's history. And this doesn't go on for, like, like, here's the deal. We got an election coming up, right? And uh, I don't know if you've been watching the debates. It, you know, if, if you haven't been, uh, grab the popcorn. It's a great show, okay? Um, and so, like, if I don't, I, you know, that, in my view of the upcoming elections, it does not matter really who you're rooting for. The prospects aren't great. You might see the prospects as okay, but I don't think anybody's seeing the prospects as great. None of us, right? And so so you might, let's just say your, your guy or your lady does not get elected to be president, and you're left with the person that you might consider a horrible, dishonest buffoon, whoever that might be. I, I really meant whoever that might be. <laughs> Now, I really honestly meant that, whoever that might be. Okay. Um, Let's say you're left with this person for the next four or eight years where you are like, this nation's going to hell in a handbasket. But you know what you have at the end of that four or eight years? Hope. Hope. Hope that somebody, thank God our forefathers, thank God for George Washington who decided that he shouldn't just reign until he died, right? Right? Thank God that our forefathers set into place a system to which there would be hope no matter who gets elected. The the nation of Israel didn't have that hope. They had decade after decade after decade after century. I mean, we're talking generation after generation after generation that lived their entire lives without hope. Lost, be, having no sense of national pride anymore. In fact, having a great sense of national shame. Just generation after generation, century after century. But there was hope. Here's the thing about these prophets that were constantly warned. And if some of you, if you've read the prophets, if you have got into the, the Old Testaments and the Old Testament, you've read those prophetic scriptures. I've had conversations with some of you who have gone through and going, man, I can't stand reading those prophets. It's just so dark and gloomy and negative and God's just going to destroy everything and all, you know, all this kind of stuff. But the thing about the prophets is, is that every one of them also weave in hope in their message. You've got to look a little bit hard for it, but it's there. There's hope there. And it came in the form of this, put that next point up, that God's plan for restoration and Israel's hope for a future was the Messiah. God's plan for restoration, restoring his people and and, and giving Israel a hope for a future was through this person that was going to come that the prophets foretold that they referred to as the Messiah. And all throughout scripture, there are these clues that the Messiah will come and he will set everything right. Everything has been laid to waste. Everything is in a horrible place, but the Messiah is coming. He will set everything right. Right. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, says this. This was kind of one of the uh, Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah. Something that he would one day do or say. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That this Messiah would come, and this nation that had been captive to its own sin, that had been captive to other nations, that had been captive to their hopelessness, would one day have hope through this one who would come and eventually set them free. Set them free. Isaiah chapter 53 says this. This is one of the most detailed descriptions of, of who the Messiah would be. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him <coughs> excuse me. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I think it gives this beautiful description of a story that we as Christians are very familiar with. The Israelites, the Israelites didn't have the, the advantage of hindsight that we have, but they had clues all along the way. It was, it was predicted, it was, it was prophesied that this Messiah would be born in, in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would uh, set his people free. Uh, that he would eventually die a death he didn't deserve between two thieves. All of these things and more were predicted about him and eventually would come true in the Messiah that was to come that we're going to start getting into next week, and I can't wait. I can't wait. All through, I'm just pick, I just picked a, a small handful of these prophecies to share with you. There are hundreds more I could have dove into that we just don't have the time to that said, yes, things look really hopeless now. But hope is on its way. Hope is on its way. The Messiah is coming. In Second Chronicles 7:14, look at this passage. God says this if my people who are called by not my name, excuse me, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my faith and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. And heal their land. All along the way, God is... He, I mean, he, he wants to hold them accountable for their actions, but he also wants to give them hope. And the hope comes in one of the most powerful words in the entire Bible. And it's one of the shortest words in the entire Bible. It's this little bitty word, if. If. And I want to challenge you to begin to, to learn to see the hope in if. But God said, yes, I'm going to lay this place waste. If you don't... If. You don't turn back to me. If you'll turn to me, I will lift you up. If you'll follow me, I'll make you great. If, if, constantly, if. That if, I think, still has repercussions in our lives today. Now, we live, whereas they were living under the law, we live under grace. We live under the good news of Jesus Christ that we're going to get into in the coming weeks. So it's a little bit different, but God's message of if still kind of reverberates through our hearts even today. If you'll turn to me, I'll take care of everything. If you'll follow me, I will use you in ways you never dreamt you could be used. If you will love me, well, I'm going to love you whether you do it or not. But if you love me, you're going to experience a communion with me that you never thought possible. If. Some of you guys are are, are right now, you come into this room and you're balancing on that word if. You're you're trying to hold it together and you're trying to, you know, can I do this? Can I not do this? God is saying if, 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 turn to me, turn to me, turn to me. And And you're questioning whether or not you can do that. You're questioning it. I want to challenge you as we've challenged you for the last couple of weeks. You can't do perfect, but you can do faithful. You can't do perfect, but you can do faithful. So continue this process of trying to be faithful to God, to putting your faith in him and in his son. Where Israel was once lost without any hope, this is what you need to know, and this is our segue into next week, that hope is here. Hope is here. Would you just bow your heads for just a second? I want to encourage you with this word, that where the nation of Israel at that point in history felt hopeless, unable to keep the law, unable to remain faithful to their God. Hopeless without any sense of future, without any sense of legacy to leave their offspring. Hopeless that after years and years and centuries of waiting for a Messiah to come one never came. We don't live under that same sense of hopelessness anymore. Our hope is well placed in Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you to give up, you know, if you're new to this whole experience and maybe you're here visiting or you know you're not really into the whole church scene yet. Can I just challenge you to give up whatever sense of hopelessness that is holding you captive this morning. When you look at your life, when you look in your future, whatever areas of your life that you're feeling hopeless about, whether it might be broken relationships, where it might be just a sense that you might not have a fulfilling future, financially, vocationally, whether your hopelessness stems from a place of, of, of a lack of self-worth, you, you can't view yourself the way God views you, which is perfect and beautiful because he sees you through Jesus Christ. Whether Maybe your hopelessness comes from a place of addiction. Maybe your hopelessness comes from a place of temptation and failure after failure. What you need to know is this. The Messiah that the whole world needed has come. We're on the other side of that story. And while I want you to feel the weight of the historical story and kind of put yourself there, I also want you to feel the the joy and the hope that we experience because we're on the other side of that story. We're in a different part of the story now. And hope has come. To your house today. Hope has come to your life today. Hope has come to your broken relationships today. Hope has come to your lack of a future today. Hope has come to your uh, addictive nature today. Hope has come to whatever it is that's shackling you today. Hope is here. And I want to challenge you to embrace that hope this morning. Right where you sit, right where you sit, would you just reach out to God in prayer? Would you just begin to lift up a prayer to him right now and just ask him, God, embrace me. I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you'll do for me what you said you'll do. I believe you will save me, forgive me, and give me a role, a place, a job in your kingdom. I believe that you'll do that. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much and we thank you for your word. God, when we look at this part of the story that seems so desperate and so hopeless, we praise your name for Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you reached into history and that you provided the savior that the world needed. We thank you that we are fortunate enough to live on this side of that story. We thank you for your blessings in our life and the way that we get to live in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. God, I'm convinced that there are people all across this room who are feeling hopelessness in different areas of their life right now. And God, would you just let your Holy Spirit's voice ring loud in their ears and remind them that you are hope and that if they will turn to you, you're all the hope they need. We thank you for if. We thank you that we always have a choice to turn to you. So God, give us the faith to do that. While your gift of grace and love and salvation and forgiveness comes to us freely, your word also says that you give us the faith to believe it. So give us the faith to believe it. We trust in you this morning. We commit ourselves to you one more time. And we anxiously await the next several weeks as we really get to hear the best part of this good news story. This in Jesus name.